Well, good morning. We are in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 3. If you would, turn there with me and then stand as we read God's holy word that's inspired and edifying for us as we read and and apply it to our lives. Romans 12, verses 3 through 13. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand and apply it today. Lord, especially all of these various admonitions to us to live out the Christian life, I pray that we would understand what you are saying here through Paul. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you'll remember from last week that Paul spoke of being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern God's will. And that transformation continues throughout the Christian life as we continue to offer our lives daily as sacrifices, meaning that we continue to die to our fleshly desires and purposes and constantly reorient ourselves to God's desires and God's purposes. And so Paul begins this next session of Scripture here with the word for, which indicates a conclusion to what he has just written in verses 1 and 2. So there's something about understanding how God is transforming us and into what he is transforming us that leads to what Paul calls sober judgment in verse 3. And then in the next several verses, Paul describes how God distributes different gifts to different members within the church. And it's natural for those members who have more obvious and prominent gifts to be treated as special or extraordinary, at least as natural to the flesh, for that is what we all as human beings tend to do in our flesh when we see something that's prominent and flashy. But God calls us to something higher. He calls us to sober judgment, to this clear-headed mindfulness and away from an exalting of ourselves. He has already spoken of dying to the flesh and sacrificing ourselves daily in verses 1 and 2. And so it is only in conforming our lives, our minds and our goals and every purpose to God's kingdom and will that we combat this natural tendency to exalt the few, to distinguish between members of the body. 
Now, I should quickly note that the end of verse 3, particularly in the ESV, is a little confusing. The way it reads in the English Standard Version, one might think that our ability to have sober judgment is according to the amount of faith that God has given us. In other words, you might think from the way it reads there that the more faith you have, the greater your judgment. But the better reading from the Greek would be this. For I say through the grace that was given to me to every person among you, that you not think of yourselves more highly than you should, but that you should think with sober judgment, since God has given to each a measure of faith. And if, if you notice there, I switched from each according to the measure of faith to since God has given to each a measure of faith. And what the Greek is really saying there is that God has given to every person equally a measure or a portion of faith. And because of this, we are actually able to soberly realize that there aren't any super-Christians. Each person has been gifted with faith. Every member has been given a measure. And we are called in faith to die to ourselves and to appreciate what God has done in distributing things amongst the body for the benefit of the entire body according to his sovereign will. And so in these next verses, Paul uses one of his favorite analogies. It's the church as a body, where he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And notice again the emphasis of unity, even in the midst of diversity that we've been seeing in the book of Romans. We are individually members of one another. We aren't even just separate body parts all trying to coordinate together. We are members of one another, each necessary to the full functioning of the other. That's what he's saying. Some of my favorite books are those which describe the complex workings of the human body. You've heard me talk about some of, some of the ways that the body works in times past. And one of my favorites is, is the eye. And even Darwin, in his famous book, The Origin of Species, said this. He said, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd. You didn't think you would agree with Darwin, did you? And he didn't even scratch the surface. He may have been fascinated with the eye and, and what he knew about it from a macro level, from a large level, and, and being able to see things. But he didn't possess a hint of the biochemical understanding that takes place on a microscopic level. Imagine what he would have thought then. And in, in past sermons about the gifts, I would take this moment to describe how we all have a different function in the body. We're a different part. I'd even probably make a joke about being an armpit, right? That's what I've done before. But that's not what we are doing today. Our passage today is Paul bringing out this important point about what it means to be individually members of one another. I want to bring that out. What does that mean? Paul says here. Well, as you watch me speak, speaking of the eye, a vast number of impulses are traveling from 
your retina through millions of nerve fibers that translate information to your visual cortex. And different wavelengths of light, different arrival times of individual light rays upon that retina are translated chemically into information that the brain uses to distinguish shape and color and distance and movement. And each of the items that Darwin thought were so complicated that that they actually would suggest a creator is what he even implies in some of his writings are reality simple compared to the complex chemistry of vision that still isn't fully understood. Some of those processes taking 20 or more distinct yet inseparable steps for just one little thing. But the point is this, as it connects in with Romans 12, that the eyes don't see on their own. We often talk about sight, just like at Darwin, and we imagine the eye and its single function of seeing the eyeball in the, in the head and the eye socket, but the eye merely provides the mechanism by which light is translated into those electrochemical signals. Another body part, the optic nerve, is required to be a bridge to yet a third body part, the brain in order to ultimately have sight. And I'm probably leaving out, for those of you who know anatomy, I'm probably leaving out a bunch of things, right? We can move on to the muscles that focus the eye or that turn the head to look at something specific. And so much more. Each of those individual parts, the eyes around the eyeball, the eye, the muscles, sorry, the, the muscles around the eyeball, not the eyes around the eyeball, the muscles around the eyeball, the muscles around the neck, the eye itself, the optic nerve, the brain, all are individually body parts, but they are required to function together properly. Otherwise, you won't have what? You will not have sight. Faith Defont sprained her thumb a few weeks ago, and she has learned how difficult it is to do some of the most routine tasks. A broken toe can change your entire posture and stride. I hurt my shoulder while biking with my son Kevin seven weeks ago. And I am truly amazed at how many things are impacted by just the shoulder sleeping on your side. Didn't ever think that that would be an issue until you have a hurt shoulder. Throwing a softball. I had told him right before we biked, I do not want to hurt my shoulder because softball starts this week. And lo and behold, I can I have to throw underhand. Doing push-ups, lifting a child, all of those motions that you take for granted in their variety and their complexity affected by one little muscle. And that's the point. The church is a body made up of many complex and vital parts. And each of you are integrally a part of one another. Look at verse 6. Each believer has gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We are all though one in Christ. Again, that unity amongst diversity. There is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free, Paul would write in another place. What makes us different is that it is God himself who has given us these different gifts and different roles to play all according to his grace, his plan. And so... The important thing to realize in all of that is that God made that plan. And if he's given you a gift to teach, it's not because you were deserving. It wasn't because of your socioeconomic background or because of your diligent studies even in school. 
And it wasn't even your personality or your passion. It is and was God's work. And on a practical level, that should actually be a great comfort because in order to teach in the body of Christ, you don't have to be trained as a teacher or possess a seminary degree or even be necessarily inclined to be a teacher. You do need to teach truth. But here's the point. You have to be gifted, or when you are gifted according to the grace God gives you to teach, you can teach. God will supply what you need. He can gift you, transform you to be an exhorter of the church according to his purpose and power. You don't have to be an outgoing person. In fact, the whole point is so often the gifts function in the presence of great faith and the impossible of what God does. Usually in, in light of our weakness so that he gets the glory. Right? A healthy church is one in which its members trust God's grace for the gifts he has given them and utilize them in faith even in despite their anxieties, their weaknesses, their fears, their conceived, you know, their perceived, self-perceived inadequacies. When you work in your own strength, you only magnify yourself. But when you work in the strength that God supplies, God gets the glory. And that's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks then speak as one who's speaking the very oracles of God. Whoever serves, then serve as one who's serving by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ, because it is to him who belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, Peter says there. So if you are not using your gift on behalf of the body, then our effectiveness together as one united whole, dependent on one another, will be diminished. We will be weaker. I remember a speaker once daring to ask, are you just occupying a seat? And that statement startled me, and my first reaction was to think that's a somewhat offensive question. Some of you are recovering right now from recent experiences in your last church. Others of you may be trying to reorient your perspective, purpose, and priorities. But the, for the rest of us, the question is pertinent. Have we gotten to a point where we simply say, I'm too tired and I, I really don't want to do anything. I just want to listen and go home. Is that what pleases God? And don't get me wrong, utilizing your gifts is not about being busy. It's not about being busy. And I don't expect those of you who aren't currently involved in something to get up after the service and ask, well, okay, well then what ministry can I volunteer for? But what I do expect is that if you aren't utilizing the gifts that God has graciously given you on behalf of the body, and all of you have been given gifts, whatever it may be, pray that God would help identify ways that you can use them. And when we realize that we assemble together not only to minister as a church, but also to benefit other individuals in that 
the, the fact that we utilize our gifts is actually going to make it possible for other, other body parts to function? It makes the meeting together of greater significance. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, so often this verse is used, and typically what happens is this is, this is used as kind of a guilting verse, right? Uh, do not neglect the gathering together. Have you been missing? Uh, what's the, your attendance like at the church? And it's simply about being obedient to this verse. But if we combine what we've learned in Hebrews or Romans 12, and even at the very beginning of this section, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We realize, friends, it's not about attending as if we are trying to make sure that we fulfill our membership requirements as a citizen of God's kingdom and, and of this local church. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is you're needed. You are needed to be a part of this body. Don't miss church thinking that it won't matter because the church as a whole won't miss you. In fact, we shouldn't even treat casually the time when we arrive at church. As we read from Paul, each of us don't just make up an isolated part in that chair there in the back corner. We all need one another's good example of timeliness, attentiveness, reverence, gift-using, exhortation, teaching, everything. And then a natural question we should ask at that point is, well, all right, let's, let's say that we do that. Let's say we have this right perspective where we understand how necessary we are to one another in the body, and we want to come. It's a significant thing for us to be here for each other. Well, what happens then? What, 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 does, what do these gifts produce ultimately in a church? Is it a super evangelistic church? Is it a church with 20 different ministries? Is it a place where we are impressed every week by everyone else or where we are affirmed because of what we are contributing? Is that what is produced? Well, we find what's produced in verses 9 through 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. You can see it all, all there. The gifts of the Spirit produce a family in which brotherly affection, service, and outdoing one another in showing each other honor reigns supreme. That's what the gifts Produced. That's what daily renewing of our minds and being conformed to the, the, the death of Christ and, and more like him and, and also in our orienting of our purposes and for his glory, that's what it all produces. And in Ephesians 3.14, Paul writes that he bows his knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Family. It's another favorite metaphor of Paul's for the church. 
And Paul's readers knew what a family was, and by comparison, they knew what the church was to be. I'm afraid that we lack, many Americans lack today that understanding because society tells us that family is what happens when two people have a child. But that's not how the Bible defines a family. In Scripture, the family is a government, it's a culture, it's got its own language and customs and traditions and countless unspoken assumptions. And God has made us in such a way that children who grow up in the culture of that family that is trained in the ways and the statutes of the kingdom of God by the representatives of the king, by their parents, a loving mom and dad will not depart from these teachings but be shaped and molded by them. And so the duty within the family is to ensure that that shaping is done by the standards of the Word of God. And if the whole church is a family, shouldn't that be true of us as well? Let it not be said of us that people come to this church and end up saying, so what's the point? I've been coming for three months. I've heard some sermons and some other teaching, but ultimately, why does this church exist? I mean, it's here renting space in the middle of Central Valley Christian Academy, their theater, and the morning, uh, Sunday morning, and the banner goes up right around 8.30, and it comes down somewhere around 1.30, 2 o'clock, and gone. Why does this church exist? Well, we must be vigilant to communicate a biblical mandate and a vision to the people who attend here every week. People must go home knowing why it is important to be a part of this body, which is a part of the larger body of Christ, and of this family, which is a part of the family that is named in heaven. And just as family members are expected to grow in relationship with one another, so we must encourage each one of you to make that effort to grow in relationship. Many years ago, I read a book titled Alone Together. And if that author is correct, and I believe she is, and that was written a long time ago because I, I did that for a dissertation 11 years ago then we are progressing. If that's true, then we are progressing towards a dangerous time. The title of the book, Alone Together, describes society today. We are either all together in public places and yet alone because we're all focused upon our phones, or we go to be alone, typically in front of a computer screen in some room in order to feel like we're together with other people that we're communicating with through social media and such. Add to that the fact that most people, especially younger people, but not not restricted to that, aren't comfortable with themselves, and so they adjust their profile photo galleries or avatars to be more attractive or simply unrealistic, and we have a, a society that is relationally challenged. And that's where both the family at home and the family as church are supposed to create a better environment. We're not supposed to imitate our dysfunctional society and 
and have large megachurches where everyone can disappear and be anonymous, or worse, sit out in a lobby watching a television and drinking coffee while the pastor preaches and pretend that we're all together. No, the church is to be a place where authentic relationships are fostered, and that includes even the opportunity for them to be tested, to grow by conflict, at least in relationship reconciliation, right? And just as family members sometimes fight but resolve conflict because they're committed to the Lord and to one another, so must we as members be one to another. And when Paul told the people that the church was a family and then he exhorted them to show brotherly affection and outdo one another and showing honor to each other, he was not speaking to a people who lived fragmented lives in a culture in which both parents worked outside the home and a people who went to synagogue and checked the children in at a separate building while they went in for, to be discipled free of distraction. A people who failed to understand that they had a God-given purpose to train and discipline their children. No, Paul spoke to a people who gathered together as a believing community, as a family, to hear the word of God. And I am thankful that some of those negative things of American culture may not be true of us per se, but nevertheless, we must be vigilant just because we bring our children into worship and perhaps focus more as a church on the family than many does not mean that we, all of us, actually see one another as members of one another. How many of you, when you walked through the door this morning, had this thought on your mind? What, what family member is God going to bring across my path today that I can honor? How will I edify the members of my family today with my gifts How can I show brotherly affection to everyone I see? And yet, that is what we are encouraged to. It's kind of the culmination of what it means to live as a body and as a family. And I see these verses in Romans 12 as each building on one another. And the last verse of our passage reads, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Why is that put at the end? I think it's a natural placement at the end of that list because it's one of the hardest things for us to do. But it is the kind of attitude and desire that results when the other things are working well. 1 Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to one another. And then he adds an important qualification, without grumbling. Because that grumbling and hesitation is is often descriptive of us, isn't it? We say, do I have to be hospitable? And then the thought of having to put together and coordinate all that's required to be hospitable, hospitable seems overwhelming. And Peter says, don't even let that thought start. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And it's interesting that he follows up those words with these next words. He says, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's an important comment, and it connects well with Romans 12. Not everyone is a fantastic cook or has a huge house for entertaining or even possesses the most winsome personality. But God has told every Christian to be hospitable, and he has equipped every believer with gifts, and it helps support what I was saying earlier, namely that the end result of utilizing your gifts creates a loving, affectionate, humble church whose members honor and serve one another. And that makes inviting them into your life and home as Christ expressing love for them through you a doable thing. Your life and your words end up ministering the gospel. And and then what Peter's saying, what Paul is saying, is that as you share your gifts that God has given you, whatever it may be, notice he doesn't say the gift of Chefhood, right? What he says are things like faith and mercy, discernment, whatever. As you utilize those gifts in inviting others into your lives, you end up ministering and loving your brothers and sisters. But even more than that, going back to the very start of this chapter, being renewed in your mind, having your priorities realigned to God's will and purpose actually transforms you into a people that can't wait to show hospitality to others. Now, that can be a scary thought because I think most of us aren't quite there yet where we're saying, I can't wait to show hospitality to others. And yet the natural flow of all of this is in the renewal of our mind, in the sacrificing of ourselves to God's higher purposes, in the reorienting of our focus from self-focus to others' orientation, to outdoing and showing one another honor, to showing brotherly affection, to utilizing our gifts, knowing how integrally we are connected with them, all of that ultimately leads us to say, give me opportunities. I want to be at church this Sunday to hear God's word, to worship him with the people of God, and to bless my family. I want opportunities. Come over to my home. Bless our family with being here. It's going to be simple. I'm just going to put the crock pot up on the sink. You know, we will have some food. Uh, we'll, we'll do a soup or whatever. It doesn't have to be complicated, friends. But it's that attitude that's the foundation. Give me the opportunity to love the body of Christ. Because it's not about us, is it? It's about becoming more and more like Christ and recognizing that we're a part of a body and a family. And notice that Paul doesn't restrict all of this desire to be hospitable to our friends. He says to the saints, and that's everyone in the body. Think about those to whom you have said, give me opportunities to show hospitality. Has it been a limited group of people that just include the ones that you are closest to? If you say, I have, we have somebody over at our house a couple times a week, is it the same 
group of few? Or would you say by extension, the, whole, the saints are invited into my life, in my home? Have you taken the time to sit during the fellowship lunch by individuals and families that you don't know or that seem different to you? We are tempted to grumble. We are tempted to hesitate and complain. We want to leave hospitality, hospitality, struggling with my words today, to those who seem to have the gift or have more money or the nicer homes or maybe we just struggle fundamentally with, with being that type of person and we blame it on being an introvert or any number of things. But maybe it's time to end that season, friends. Maybe it's time to end that. And the final analysis, what motivates us, and I'll just highlight this again, to show all of these attitudes for others is the love of God for us and in us. In Hebrews 13, 16, we read, do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. For with such sacrifices, and he's saying that's doing good and sharing. Again, that idea of hospitality, edification of others. And God calls it a sacrifice. And that ties us back into Romans 12, 1 through 2. Which, remember what Paul said about it? It is our spiritual act of worship. And that word sacrifice connects in with worship. And it's all a circle, friends. Because as God renews your mind and you go through that transformation process and you become that others-oriented, others-focused, outdoing one another people that show hospitality to the saints, it all delights and pleases God. It's all a sacrifice that you give to your God as worship. In fact, I would, I would be so bold as to say that if you're not doing those things, but coming on a Sunday morning to worship, that you're being hypocritical. So that's maybe bold. But it's, it's a hard saying that we need to wrestle with. In Philippians 4, Paul refers to a sacrifice of sharing. He speaks there of the gift that Epaphroditus brought from the church of Philippi to him in prison. In 4.18 we read, I have received full payment and more. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And again, those words of worship. So remember this, whenever you love others, whenever you show honor, preference, whenever you do good to the saints, hospitable, treating the body as a family, you are acting as a priest of the kingdom of God. And again, that elevates the importance of being the church. So freely you have received friends, freely give. There is no greater joy than the joy of experiencing God's grace working through you to bless other people. Let us be a family. Let us be a body. Let us be the church.
Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your blessed word, your challenging word, your word that sometimes even makes us stumble over things that we have made sacred. We've made sacred the gathering together on Sunday morning and we call that worship and exclusion of other things and we don't realize that, Father, to worship is to worship in spirit and truth and it's far more global than just what takes place in the corporate body gathering on a Sunday morning. Our worship is daily. Our worship takes place in the dying to ourself and the elevating of you and of others. It takes place in, in some of these ways that we see the Christian life lived out in Romans chapter 12. And these are challenges. These are stumbling blocks maybe to us because we've grown comfortable in our routines. It's comfortable to sit in a seat and leave having heard or have lunch, and then, and then go back about life as usual. Father, help us to be challenged by these words from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, on many occasions, we've made the <coughs> connections between the Old Testament and the Lord's table, particularly as we've talked um, Passover meal and understanding that in the light of um, a full revelation in the Lord's table and the connection there. Um, but we make an error if we think that the relationship of the believer um, in the Old Testament that trusted God was the same because there are some dramatic changes for the New Testament believer that help us to understand our participation today in what we do. Because when we come before the table today, we, we come as adopted sons and daughters in a very unique way and also as friends with Jesus. And some of the scriptures that talk about that are pretty dramatic. Galatians 12 or 4.4 4, <clears throat> 